There are many dangers in the church today, but two in particular that would apply to what we'll discuss now. Two dangers. The first would be this idea of fake power. Fake power. Many in the church are trying to fake power, manufacture power. And that might look like people who are trusting in another power and not the power of the gospel to see lives change. That might be people who trust in another sort of power to get people in the door. They're looking for other methods and other modes of attraction. They don't believe that the gospel is power enough. They try to fake it. People who advertise, you know, everyone's going to get healed or everyone's going to be rich or what have you. They advertise fake power, hoping that if people are attracted to that, that somehow they'll come and then magically everyone will just get saved and follow Jesus because it's all good and we all feel good and that power gets manufactured. One church uh, recently boasting an ad that came across my desk. I didn't ask for this. It just came to me. These things sometimes do. And it reads, remember when you were a kid and church was B-O-R-I-N-G boring? Well, we remember too. That's why we've made it our mission to make church fun again. Come check us out this Sunday. We'll hook kids up with free ice cream and popsicles. Our kids' church has fun games. It's clean. It's a safe environment. It's got basketball and lots of fun friends. There's some Bible here now. The Bible lessons are fun, vibrant, and sticky. Kids can be creative, burn off energy, and get prizes in a large group. Your kids will beg you to come back to church. We have free coffee and donuts every week, and you can feel free to take them into service with you. You'll love the music, and preaching is anything but boring here. Oh, and no need to dress up. Just wear what you normally wear. And then there's a smiley face emoji. See you this Sunday. We don't judge. We help people win. That is the picture in mainstream evangelicalism today. This idea that there's a champion in all of you and the church's job is to help you discover the champion in you and everybody's a winner and everybody gets a participation trophy just come to church have the free stuff go out happy and if you're not at least your kids had a really good time and they'll rope you back in give your money and we'll keep paying the bills that's fake power That's not the power of truth. That's not the power of the gospel. But before we just go knock on everybody who does things a little bit more liberally in their methodology, let's swing the pendulum back over and be real careful now. Because as a conservative church, a church that loves the truth, just like we worshiped about, how quickly can we lose the passion and we forget the power that saved us? We forget Paul's words, the such were some of you, how Christ has come in and changed us. We and conservative evangelicalism tend to look a little more like the frozen chosen than a people redeemed. And if the small groups get a little too big and and, and tight, we get a little uncomfortable. And if people start running in to the church and it's full like this, we start going, who do they think they're coming into our church? Is this place going to change now? I don't know if I'm really comfortable sitting next to this guy. He's got tattoos, and this gal is not wearing an overcoat and a sweater and a skirt down to her ankles, and I don't know if I'm comfortable with this kind of church anymore. Wear what you want. Well, what are people going to (laughs) wear? And all of a sudden, we forget why we were saved in the first place, and not just why, but how. It was power. Anybody was lost, now found? Anybody used to be a such were some of you? Anyone look at the laundry list of sins that Paul lists and go, I was that. 
And then you were going down the freeway heading north and all of a sudden, well, you're probably going south, down, and all of a sudden Paul turns you north, now you're going up? Anybody. How quickly we forget the power. So yeah, there's some people out there that are faking the power and people who certainly forget the power. We want to live in the middle, in that beautiful tension knowing that it is God's power at work. We don't have to fake it and try to manufacture it, but don't you dare forget the power that you wield. And that is the preaching proposition of this service. It's simply this. The gospel delivers with unstoppable power. You need no other message. There is no other means by which we attract people into the church. And you know what? We got donuts too. (laughs) But we want to give people the truth. Amen? The truth and nothing but the truth. So track with me Paul's words. First, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes into its source. It is the power of God for salvation. Unto salvation. If we're reading in the the ESV, not the NASB, dunamis, the word power is might, strength, force, ability. This is miracle working power. This is not the power of man. And Paul writes that it's that power of God unto or for salvation. The Greek word soteria, basically meaning to deliver or rescue, to bring to safety. And it's synonymous with the idea of ransoming. Like somebody buying back their child from kidnappers, ransoming people. So if we were to read this literally in a Greek translation in today's 2019 vernacular, you could easily say, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the miraculous and mighty ability of God to ransom people out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. That's why we sing out of the darkness and into the light. Glorious day, coming out of the grave, Lazarus, come forth, Mark, come forth, Julie, come forth, Dennis, come forth, whatever your name is, come forth. That's what happens when the power of the gospel goes in and suddenly life is breathed into a dead corpse and we come to Life. The word soteria occurring some 44 times in the New Testament. And when you take a tour through it, you see it's basically always used to describe a sinner who's been liberated and set free from the chains and bondage of damnation, their sin, spiritual deadness. And it is not a work of man that is causing this. Every time it is a work of God. You think back to Zacchaeus in Luke 19 when Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today, you short scam artist. You're up in that tree looking for me. I'm coming to you. You're going to get saved. It's power. The power of God. It is just as important, though, to know where the power is coming from as it is to know where it is not coming from. If it's the power of God, it is not the power of man. It will not be the power of your works. It will not be the power of your education, your intellect, our government, our culture. It won't be the power of any type of man-centered methods to attract people in or get people saved. It may not even and probably won't be your apologetic, no matter how much you can prove scientifically or biblically that God exists and that salvation is in Christ alone. That won't even save people. It's a work of God. Only he can change the human heart. He's the creator of it, so why is he not relied upon to be the savior of it? Natural questions arise, though, don't they? Oh, you say, "Ah, I understand, Costi, that it's God's power that saves, but 
I think the Bible says a little bit something about me, right? Something about my prayers. Can't prayer change things? I got that bumper sticker, right? Power of prayer. What about preaching? Doesn't the Bible say something? Isn't there something about preaching? We go out, we tell people, and then we save them. And it, it, Man has something to do. Do I not have some sort of role or responsibility? What power do I have? Is this some sort of hyper-Calvinistic, you know, we sit around, God is sovereign, twirling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus to return? What do I do? If it's all a work of God. Well, we ought to remember very well that it was John Calvin who was no hyper-Calvinist, as some might call it today. John Calvin said, men are not the authors of salvation. They are the ministers of it. So don't you let anybody tell you that certain things are what they are until you look at what people actually said and what the Bible actually teaches. There's a tension there that we need to be okay resting in. Yes, God is sovereign but man has a responsibility. And here they are. You can track in your notes, letter A underneath the header that God powerfully saves lost souls. Number one, God powerfully saves lost souls and our labors are used by God to bring about salvation. So yes, it's God who powerfully saves. However, or end, he is using your labors as a means to bring salvation to people. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, and even in Gilbert, Arizona. You will be my witnesses. And I want you to look at the healthy balance that Paul had with regard to his responsibility, that there is certainly a way that God uses the way that you live, the way you talk, the way you work, all of it. So go with me. Let's do a little Bible study in the middle of the sermon. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 with me. Love hearing those pages, a little old school. Pages turning in the sermon. I'm not shaming you people that are swiping with your thumb right now. It's okay. <laughs> Let's just get the Bible in front of you. Step one. All right? Okay. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Let's track together. And I'm going to add in some commentary. Paul says, For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might, you can circle it if you're a Bible note-taking page circler, win more. He says, win more. So there's a work of man. I want to win some people, Paul's saying. And he's talking about Christian liberty here. Surrendering rights, surrendering things he's allowed to do and that are not sin. And he's saying, I have something to do with this. God, yes, is sovereign and saving, but the way I operate is an instrument in the hand of a sovereign God. Keep going with me here. He says in 20, to the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I become as one under the law, though I'm not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He goes on, and here's what I don't want you to miss. Go to 22, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might, what? Save some. Paul understands that yes, God is sovereign, but the way he lives and operates and functions as a minister of salvation matters and will be useful to God. Why is this so important? Because he does it all for the sake of the gospel. He wants to share in them with this blessing. In reference to Christian liberty, here's what some of us need to wrestle through when it comes to our responsibility. An immature Christian says, 
how far can I go without crossing the line and compromising the gospel? Right? Immature Christianity. A mature Christian says, how much can I give up so that I may never be a hindrance to the gospel? The gospel's offensive enough, isn't it? That Jesus is the only way. So why go on and make it more offensive with the way that some of us operate? We ought to be careful how we live. Yes, the Bible does not say, uh, I've heard people say this as an argument. I have friends that do this. People say, you know, the Bible doesn't say I I can't drink. It just says I can't get drunk. Absolutely. And I've got other friends that are more liberal that say, yeah, I've chosen not to because I don't want to be a stumbling block in X. The Bible says, doesn't say you can't smoke a cigarette. The Bible doesn't say you can't cut somebody off in the church parking lot. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't say, right? But is there wisdom in not partaking or doing or saying certain things? Does the Bible say that, you know, it's a sin to kind of chuckle to yourself if somebody makes a sarcastic or crude joke at the office? No, but can it be a stumbling block to somebody when we are simply living our life under Christian liberty and going, I'm good. You can't tell me that sin. You're a legalist. Absolutely. But how important it was to Paul. He says, I can do it all, but I'm always looking at the way I live because yes, we serve a sovereign God, but he's using my labor to minister salvation. So he's very careful and we also must be very careful Are we allowed to do certain things? Yes. Is legalism a constant temptation in our hearts? Absolutely. But don't forget this principle. Carelessness towards how you live for the gospel leads to uselessness in how effective you are for the gospel. Your labor matters. Your labor matters. Next, our prayers are used by God to bring about salvation. Our prayers. So yes, it does matter. That you pray. Even though God is sovereign, we must pray. Some people ask, well, if God's sovereign over everything, then why pray? I would ask and say, because God is sovereign, how can we not pray? You see, God has, yes, determined all things. And what does he use as the means by which he accomplishes all things? The prayers of his people. Anybody else have answered prayer before? You ever have prayer answered? Did you change God's mind? about something. Did you make him do it? No. You prayed according to his will and he did it. And the joy is you get to be used in that process. Let me say it to you this way. As we look, prayer doesn't change God's will, but it changes people's will. Do you know the goal of prayer is not to get God to do your will? I know that shocks some of you. I'll say it again. It's early. (laughs) Prayer is not to get God to do your will. Prayer is to bring your heart into alignment with his will. That's why Jesus in the garden, he made his request, oh, let the cup pass from me. And then what does he say? But not my will, but yours be done. Oh, Lord, please save my sister. Oh, Lord, please save my dad. Open their eyes. You can do it. You did it for me. Oh, your will be done. I know you want to save people. Please save them. That's the sovereignty of God through a prayer. Oh, use any means possible, Lord. Oh, just open the door. Bring the gospel to them. And they live two streets over on Higley. You are the answer to your prayer. You are and I am so often the answer to our prayer. We're praying the will of God and God already says, my will is already decreed. Go and reach them with the gospel. So we need to remember that. 
We're not praying to change God's will. We're praying to align ourselves with his will. And sometimes we don't even like the answer to prayer because it makes more work for us. But we need to be humble understanding that truth. Some really interesting things that you'll see throughout the New Testament. We don't have time for all of them. Sometimes pastors nerd out and study and then we try to bring it all out like we got four hours to sit here. So we don't. Let's go quickly. Acts seven fifty four is the verse to chapter 8, verse 3. Let's turn there together. Okay, Acts chapter 7, verse 54. And then we'll read to chapter 8, verse 3. I'm going to start. Catch up with me. The stoning of Stephen. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, is out there preaching. And the Bible says some really interesting things about the way people responded. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, that basically is, you're sinners, you killed them, you need to repent, turn to Christ, and these Jews get really upset. They say, through gnashing of teeth and anger, essentially, get them. They say, get them. They ground their teeth at him. But, verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens. They're open. The Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, meaning those guys that are mad and they're demonically possessed and they're gnashing their teeth. They cry out with a loud voice. They plug their ears like a bunch of third graders. No, stop what you're saying. We don't want the truth. And then they rush them. And they charge him out of the city and they go to stone him and kill him. And I want you to notice something here. In verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Who did Saul become in Acts chapter nine? What do we see his name as? The Greek name, Paul. Isn't that interesting? But that's not even the most interesting part. What's next is, Look at what Stephen says. And as they were stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, and falling on his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. What a powerful moment. Could it be that God is in heaven Knowing all things, having called all men, having chosen his people, having given the power and the means by which to see them saved, he looks down and he sees old Paul. Arms crossed, chin nodding, going, get him, kill him, take him out. They lay their robes at his feet. He's nodding with hearty approval. And Stephen cries out to heaven, oh Lord, don't hold this against him. Could it be that God says, okay, now, remember Paul? Remember I told you about him? He's gonna write 13 of the New Testament's 27 letters. He's gonna overthrow this whole system. I'm gonna use the last guy you'd ever think who would be a means by which I take my gospel to mankind. Yeah, that guy, okay, it's now. We're gonna knock him off his horse. Jesus, son, you blind him. And then yell down to him, why are you persecuting me? And then we'll send him over. He'll get the scales off his eyes. And then we're going to unleash him into ministry. And he'll go and declare the son of God as Jesus Christ. That's power. That's transformational power. 
That's what you see throughout the scriptures. And you see what Paul's ministry then goes and does. In Iconium, he speaks in such a manner that a great multitude believed in Acts 14.1. You can look at these later. They're in your notes as cross-references for you. Philippi, gospel power opened Lydia's heart and she believed. She wasn't seeking God. God sought after her and said, now, heart open. I created you, now open and receive my message. That's the power of God. And yet Paul being used. In Athens, in Acts 17, gospel power shatters the thinking of ignorant people and Luke records that some believed. This is gospel power. And in Ephesus, one of my favorite stories, Acts chapter 19, the idol makers, they're really, really wealthy and they make all the little idols and all the deceived people come and they have to buy them and then they worship and bow down and put them in their house and all that good stuff. So the idol making business is doing really, really well. And then Paul has to come along. And a bunch of people start getting saved and so they start walking by like you when you decide not to get your Christmas cards from the local town store anymore and you're ordering on Amazon and the guys out front go, hey, you need Christmas cards this year? You go, nope, and you keep going. That's what it was like in Ephesus. Hey, you need your idol? Hey, hey, don't go to the temple to Artemis without this. It's an updated version. You gotta order yours. And people are going, oh, we don't, we don't need that anymore. Why? What happened? Oh, we met this Paul guy, told us about this Jesus guy. Yeah, he's it. We're good. And they start getting mad. And they're livid. And they say, literally, Luke records this in the book of Acts, chapter 19. He goes, our prosperity depends on this business. Get this guy out of town. That's gospel power. That's why Paul determined to preach nothing except Christ and him crucified. It was not fake power. He did not forget the power. It was real gospel power. But it's not all going to be a cakewalk just because you wield gospel power. Yes, God powerfully saves. Yes, he uses your labors. Yes, he works through the power of prayer. But let her see our enemy works tirelessly to keep the lost from salvation. There is an adversary. This is the essence of spiritual warfare. A lot of people think spiritual warfare is, you know, you stubbed your toe this week and you think the devil keeps hurting you and moving the furniture in your house. That's not spiritual warfare. And some of you, look, we've all done this at some point in immaturity or maturity or just even joking around. The car dies or you lock the keys in there or you're late to church and you go, that devil's doing it again. That's not spiritual warfare, friends. Is the devil a divine being? No. He is a created angel. He's not deity. He's not divine. Who is the one who has divine attributes? God. One of them being omnipresent. Meaning all places at all times. Is the devil omnipresent? Lucifer himself. No. So unless you are very corrupt and very special for his plan to overthrow humanity. He's not coming down Guadalupe or Greenfield to come to your house and make you stub your toe or kill your car battery. (laughs) Chances are that would be one of his minions, principalities of darkness and forces of evil that we see in scripture. So I know we all say it. I know it's kind of just tongue in cheek or it's one of those phrases like people say, God told me, God told me. And what they really mean is that they had a thought because 1 Corinthians 2 says that we have the mind of Christ. And they're filled with God, literally the Holy Spirit. So why wouldn't we think things that are in line with God, right? They're like, God told me, because they thought a thought. Well, you hear with your ears and you think with your mind. So God didn't tell you. 
You just have the mind of Christ. But I get it. It's a, it's a what do you call those, idiosyncratic statements. It just kind of comes off the tongue and the devil is attacking me or God told me. That's not what's happening. But we do need to know if the devil's not coming down as Lucifer to attack me on my street at this time. Where is he? He's roaming around the earth seeking who he may devour. He's at work through principalities. He's probably attacking large governments and using methods to deceive large swaths of people and corrupt individuals who are in authority and power. But we also see what he's doing through that or by means of that to the minds of people in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll read these to you. You go back and read them later. Verses 1 through 4, Paul explains if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. A lot of people understand that. In their case, the God, lowercase g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan's trying to blind people. That's his game through every means he can. Through culture, through music, through false churches, through false teachers, through your own selfishness, your own pride, your own sin, all of it across the board. His goal is to assault this. One more. 2 Corinthians 10. Same church, same letter. Verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, verses 3 through 5, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And catch this, we destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and then we take every thought captive unto or to obey Christ. It's a battle for the mind. That's what the enemy's trying to assault. That's why you wonder when you look around and people's worldview is so skewed, That's our enemy. That's why when churches rely on fake power, they're missing it. I just want to go in there sometimes and shake them and go, look, give the free donuts. We have them too and have fun. Goodness, church should be fun. We don't need to be all stuffy sitting around like we're the only people around. Yes, but don't forget that the truth is what sets the captives free. That's the power. Satan loves and all of his demonic minions are enjoying themselves. They're cheering and, and clapping as loud as we do to gospel-centered music. They're cheering the churches on who are relying on fake power. Yes, keep it up. And they're cheering people. Keep going. Yeah, yeah you know what? Let's reno the place, add seven more doors. Keep them all coming in. They're cheering as people go into powerless churches because he loves to pollute their minds. This is why preaching is so important. This is why at our church, preaching is the tip of the spear. That's the labor. That's why the songs are soaked in scripture. That's why we read scripture. That's why the music leaders and others are pointing to scripture. And that's why we get up here. And I'm not here to tell you stories and entertain you. Neither is Pastor John or any other man who takes this pulpit. We are here to give you the word of God. Because when you think of Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, and the armor of God, you remember all the pieces? Breastplate of righteousness, defensive. Helmet of salvation protects the mind, assurance of salvation, defensive. Got my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, defensive. I'm protecting my shins. Belt of truth, I'm keeping the loins up, defensive. Shield of faith, defensive. Sword of the spirit, yes, defensive. However, what is the one piece of the armor that is also offensive? 
the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. And so you wield an impotent message, an impotent power if you do not wield the word of God. That's what we need. If you're not seeing minds change, you will not see lives change. That's how people sit in church for 30 years and then come forward one morning, bawling their eyes out at various sermons that we preach, saying, I have never heard this before. Because somebody wasn't wielding the sword of the Spirit. We must. Now, God powerfully saves. He uses our labors. He uses our prayers. We have an adversary who is working against that end. Number two, and finally, two-point sermon, God requires faith in order to be saved. God requires faith in order to be saved. Look at the latter half of verse 16. Paul says it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Believes here is derived from the word pistis in the Greek, meaning to be persuaded or to have conviction. You think of two people who are looking at a chair and one says, yeah, I think that's blue. And the other says, no, that's gray. I know it like I know it like I know it. You're colorblind, that chair is gray. Okay, that's to be convinced. That's to be persuaded. That's to have pistis, to believe, to be absolutely without a shadow of a doubt convinced that what is is, and not to get overly a seminarian on you. We call this seminitis sometimes in pastoral ministry. It's a real disease. It's when pastors just start throwing out big words to show everyone that they're smart, and then we don't explain it. Like as if on Monday morning tomorrow, you're not just trying to wrestle with sin. You've got to figure out all the big words, and you're using them, right? Like at State Farm or wherever you work, you're like, yeah, sanctification, justification, glorification. You know what I'm saying? They're just like, just sell me insurance, please. That <laughs> is seminitis, So in preaching, we bring the cookies down. It doesn't insult people's intelligence. It's the way it's always been. That's why the Bible's written in Koine Greek. That literally means common. The Bible, though Luke wrote very eloquently as a physician in the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, the Bible is in simple language for simple people. I don't know about you, degrees or not, I'm a simple guy. I just need it simple. So, here it is. Grammatically, we have these in English too, The word believes, to everyone who believes, don't miss this, you can circle it in your Bible, is a present active word. It means like this, I'm thinking, or I'm walking, or I'm running. It doesn't mean you just sat there and said, oh, I believe, okay, Jesus, walk the aisle, pray a prayer, I'm good. On with my life now. It is this, literally. To everyone who is continually, ongoing, repetitiously, habitually believing. So here's a big theological truth. The reality is, if you've ever been told that you can lose your salvation or if you do such and such, you're backsliding and you were saved, but now you're not saved, you were told a lie. The Bible is clear that once you are saved, the truly saved will stay saved. And so you think, well, what are you talking about? Uh, My sister Janie was following Jesus and then at 25 years old walked away from everything. She was in the youth group. She read her Bible. She was more spiritual than me. She served at VBS, did Royal Family Kids Camp, sat in the front row, served the other service in children's ministry, and then just suddenly walked away. Got a boyfriend after college and all of a sudden turned into an atheist. You're telling me that girl wasn't saved? I'm not telling you that. The Bible says so. Here's a question. Are the four soils that Jesus talks about the four stages of the Christian life or are they four hearts that received the gospel message or did not receive the gospel message? 
you may have been taught it's the four stages of the Christian life. Sometimes it gets sprinkled on you and you're like hard like the path. I mean, that preaches really well. I get that. And sometimes you're the rocky soil, you're shallow, you're, new, you're a newbie in the faith, right? A rookie. And then you, you go deeper and sometimes there's all these distractions in the world. So that's some of you and then you're, God's gonna do it. He, he's got you. And then some of you are just awesome and you're serving and you're so good and you're giving and you're doing it all and you're producing a harvest. That, that is just the four stages. We're all on a journey. No, we're not. Jesus was saying, sometimes the gospel will hit the hard path and it doesn't go in. Those people aren't saved. And sometimes the seed is planted but it wasn't genuine. They hit the bedrock. It was a shallow thing. They got sucked into the emotions of the music. The people were really nice. The free stuff kept them coming. But they were never really of me. That's why First John says they went out from among us because they were never truly what? Of us. Those weren't genuine converts. That's why in Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, this, that, this. He'll go, I, didn't, I don't know you. You weren't a genuine convert. No matter what you said, I saw the way you lived. Your heart was never genuinely transformed. And then other people, a long time they appear saved, but eventually the true them comes out because truth and time go hand in hand. And eventually the parasmos, he says, those thorns start choking out. The temptations, the riches, the cares of this world. And all of a sudden, you'll trade in Jesus if the price is right. And then there's a group who produce a harvest a hundred times. It is the four different types of hearts that the gospel hits. And so you gotta understand God's word, not mine. The truly saved will say, stay saved. And it will be evident, still be really clear. You remember in the book of James, we're told don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. We're told also in James that faith without works is dead. And around that same area in the book of James, he says what? Even the demons believe, you do well. You who say Jesus is Lord, you got a lot in common. So does the devil. That's truth. And what is the evidence of true conversion? I'll say it to you this way. You are not saved by good works. You are saved for good works. Paul says real clear in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace through faith you have been saved, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. You don't be bragging about all you've done to save yourself. You did nothing. You were a dead corpse and any good works were just like putting lipstick on a dead corpse and you were just, you were done. You were dressing up and nothing was going on inside that heart and that mind. But God, rich in mercy, then saves. And what does he say? You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So you got to ask. I, I might do the Romans 10, 9. I believe, I believe. But are our good works following after your confession or are you one of those people who raised the hand, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer? And believe me, there's nothing wrong with coming forward to your pastors and making a confession of faith. I'm not knocking that. But does your life after the fact mark a progression of faith and belief that matches what you originally said? I'm not talking about perfection, but I am talking about progression. Are you growing? Because what you say matters, but it's what you do that matters most. That's your responsibility. You must believe. You must have faith. You must. And I know that you are thinking people, and I know you have your Bibles, and I know you have your outlines. So look down real quick and look at number one and look at number two. 
It is God who powerfully saves lost souls. But then I said that you have to have faith. So which is it? Yes. God is sovereign in saving. God is the author of salvation, but you must repent and you must choose to respond and you must believe. Which is it? Yes. Yes. See, we want so much dogmatic black and white in the church today. I understand that because the Bible is very much black and white on a lot of things, but sometimes there are divine truths that are too glorious and too incomprehensible for our finite minds. And so instead of always getting caught up on both sides, you know, sovereignty, responsibility, predestination or not, I choose, you choose, Calvinism, Arminianism, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of getting caught up in all the debates, why don't we just, instead of saying, we're Calvinists, we're Arminians, we're cessationists, we're this-ist and this-ist and this-ist, just be a biblicist. If the Bible says it, I do it. If the Bible says it, I believe it. The Bible says that I got to believe The Bible also says that he's the one doing the work in my heart. And then Paul says to the church at Philippi, and this will be in your questions for after as you go study on the back of your outline, he he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I got to work it out? I got that costy guy. It's me doing it. For it is God who works within you to will for both his good work and good pleasure. Oh, it's God. Which is it? Yes. We got to rest in the theological tension as if a God who is so infinite and incomprehensible, who created the earth in such a way that even scientists are dumbfounded by it, that if gravity were to change some one part of like 10 to the hundredth power, that life on earth would not be possible. That's the kind of God we serve who set the earth on its axis, who makes sure that the oceans rise and roar and they go as they do, that the lunar patterns and all of it's interconnected, that God, surely he could not come up with a theological truth that would confuse all of us. Surely we are so smart that we could land on either side and then throw stones at the other. No, God is sovereign and you are responsible Charles Spurgeon said it this way, divine responsibility, or sorry, divine sovereignty rather, and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. You don't need to reconcile the two because you never need to reconcile two friends. And then he says, where those truths meet, I don't know, but I'm resolved to simply believe what the Bible says. And that was that. So the big question to finish is this. You got the power of salvation, possible only because God's power, through your labors, through your prayers, you must have faith and believe. The big question, how do you know if you've experienced the unstoppable power of God in conversion? How do you know if you're saved? I didn't want a single one of you to miss these. I love you. I care for you. Many of you I don't know yet. I'm newer here, but listen, I do. I pray for you. I don't know all your names, but I pray for the hearts of people who will fill the seats. And these are not fill in the blank for a reason. I don't want you to miss one. Let's spend just the last few minutes we have looking at what the Bible says about a true convert. If you truly say you're saved, this is some of the evidence. Anybody want objective truth in their life? I do. I want to look and say, God, how do I know? If I said it with my mouth, what else do I need to see to go absolutely? That confession with the mouth, solely by faith, by your grace, was genuine. How do we know? Look at these with me. We'll read through them together and then we'll finish. Number one, Romans 10, 9. You confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you trust in him by faith. There must be a verbal assent 
to Christ as the Son of God, you must confess him as Lord. You must. Two, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Basically this, you confess sin. That's the mark of a true believer. Are you confessing sin? Are you no longer indifferent to sin? Anybody remember when they used to sin and didn't care? Now, there is a civil virtue that is general morality, which is this. Do we all want to drink and drive? No. Even unbelievers don't want to do that because it kills people, right? Do you want to run a red light? No, because no one, even unbelievers, don't like paying the ticket. Okay, that's general or civil virtue. That's baseline morality in humankind. I'm not talking about not being indifferent to that. Everybody's indifferent, or everybody cares about that. I'm talking about those other things that are listed in the Bible. Were you once indifferent to those? The answer is yeah. But when Christ comes in, suddenly you have this hatred for the sin. Do you remember that? You wrestle with it. If you stumble, you go, God, why do I do that? I hate that. And you sound like Paul in Romans chapter 6 and 7 when he says, oh, the things that I I don't want to do, I do. And then the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? That's the cry of a believer. If you ever find yourself not perfect and not sinning, but sinning and then weeping over it, you don't need to come to church going, I I, I don't think I'm a Christian, I, I, I sinned. No, you are a saint who sinned as you confess and go to the one who paid for your sins, amen? Let's keep going. Three, habitual patterns of sin, this is tied to the last one, are decreasing and fading. The such were some of you, that list is getting shorter and shorter. There's not as many outbursts of anger. You used to be sexually immoral, now those patterns are fading. You used to be an alcoholic and suddenly you don't have a taste for it. Things are fading and you're more patient and you're more kind and you're more loving. You ever talk to somebody who's married to someone who totally did a 180 and got completely saved? I talked to a guy this week. I'm always amazed when I'm preaching these kind of sermons, the kind of people that come by my office. And I'm, I'm being like frozen chosen guy. I'm sitting there with the door closed like a monk or a hermit. I'm like, I got to study. I got to preach. I got to study. I got to preach. And then knock, knock, knock. Or the door's open for five minutes. The guy comes in, hey, pastor. And this one part of me is like, oh, why are you bothering me? I have to preach to you on Sunday. I need all my blocks. I need my time. And then, but that's costy in the flesh. That's sinful. And then this other guy, the Holy Spirit comes in and goes whack upside my head and goes, hey, Fool. You were just praying for those hearts that you're going to preach to. Sit down and you listen and you let him tell his story. And this man proceeds to bring me to tears as he talks about who he was and now who he's not. And when he talks about uh, the struggles and the alcoholism, raising children on his own after losing his wife and, and he's struggling and his kids are watching, some eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds watching and suddenly dad just changes. And he goes from being lost, foul, unconverted, alcoholic, drinking his pain away to being this guy who suddenly doesn't. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the power. That's what starts to happen. And that's an evidence of conversion. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Fourth, you desire to be obedient to Christ. James 1.22, you don't just want to hear the word, you want to do it. Anybody got an increasing desire to be obedient? You're like, yeah, give me the hard stuff. Tell me what I need to do. I already know it's only because of the power of the gospel, and now I'm ready to go out and do it. Let's do it. I want to obey Jesus. That's the evidence of a convert. If you find yourself resistant and rebellious, and you're more like the man that Proverbs describes, where you're hardening your neck beyond remedy because you won't listen to reproof, and soon you'll be broken, that's not a sign of being a converted believer. How about this one? Fifth, almost there. Your love for others is increasing. You love people. John writes, this is how they'll know that you're one of my children, that you love one another. Sometimes when churches aren't really loving, but they got the truth, right? You wonder if it's a lot like those Pharisees that were missing the Messiah, even though they knew everything. I want to be real careful if you're not seeing patterns of love pour out of your heart. You are a believer when the patterns are loving. Sixth, you hunger for God's word. First Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, you gotta long for it. Why? So you grow with respect to your salvation. If you've been saved, the heart starts to crave the sustenance, the bread of life, the food, my spiritual food. I need the word. You ever remember the song when you were a kid? If you don't read your Bible and pray every day, you will shrink, shrink, shrink. Anybody sing that? Just me? No. If you read your Bible and pray every day, you will grow, grow, grow. Some of you grew up like I did. It's the food that makes you grow. You'll hunger for it if you're a true believer. Seventh. You desire to see other people saved. You're not like the wicked servant that buries the talent. You're like the other guy who's going out and multiplying it. You just want to be an ambassador. And when you look at uh, what Paul says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, we all kind of woo-hoo at the ambassador part. Woo, I'm an ambassador. He became sin who knew no sin. He did it all for me. We all want to shout about that part. But prior to that, Paul says, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. You've been given a stewardship. And if you're a believer, your job isn't just to sit on it. It's to take it and see other people reconciled. That's what a true believer is going to do. Here's one. Stick with me. You love to serve the body of Christ with good works. It's what you were saved to do. So if you are saved, it's what you will do. Put it to you this way. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 This is an uncomfortable text to face in 2019 when we're really into pleasure and vacation and recreation and all the good stuff and we don't really want, we're like, yeah, the church, okay, fine. I got a lot to do. Listen, the church at that time had been getting so badly persecuted because Nero, who essentially set the fire ablaze in his city, said, I need a scapegoat. The Christians did it. So they were all getting killed. And Paul, or Peter rather, has the audacity to write to these persecuted Christians, literally being killed and martyred, and says in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, you've been given a grace gift. You got a spiritual gift. Nobody gets spiritual gifts except believers because you can't be a believer without having the Holy Spirit and you can't be given the Holy Spirit and not be given a gift because he's the giver of the gifts. And therefore, you guys, and he says, employ it to serve one another. Serving is a command. And he says, do it because you've been given a grace gift. 
So you got to do it. You're, you guys are believers. It's, it's like, I have to do it. Why wouldn't I? I've been given a gift. God lives inside of me and I've got to use it. He says, employ it in serving one another. That's why it is commanded to serve for a Christian. You just, it comes out of you. You ever know those crazy people that are here early, gone late? They're always doing stuff or put me to work. What do you want me to do? And you wonder, are they just extra spiritual? No, they're just living out what they've been gifted and given the ability to do. That's what believers do. Two more. You experience the discipline of God. And some of you are going, what did you say? A true believer experiences the discipline of God. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, I cross-reference so you believe me, this is in the Bible. That God chastises or chastens those that he loves. Anybody here spank other people's kids? Yeah, if you want to go to jail... You show up to my house to spank or discipline or take my kids' toys away or give them time out, we're going to have a problem. I come to your house and go, I'm the pastor now. I'm here to discipline your children. In Arizona, there's a lot of laws that allow a lot of people to do a lot of things. You do not show up to someone's house to do that, especially as a pastor. Right? Why? Because they're your kids. And my kids are my kids. And the ones that I love, I discipline. So it is with God. Anybody here get upset when a coach goes over to your kid and says, hey, son, uh, stop running to third base. You run to first base out of the box. And you walk over and go, how dare you talk to my child and correct and discipline him? You unloving, uncaring coach. No, you would say, hey, coach, thanks, man. I've been telling him at home in the backyard too. This kid keeps running to third. I don't know what he's doing. We want the correction. We invite the correction. It's the mark of a faithful coach who loves the players, who does not ignore the players. The mark of a father who is not like Eli in the Old Testament, whose sons were sleeping with women in the church, eating the temple meat, running amok. And what was Eli's great sin? God said, you did not correct your sons. God corrects and disciplines his children. So some of you that things in life aren't working and you go, why are you doing this to me, God? It's because he loves you. Every dead end after dead end after dead end and finally you hit rock bottom because you're stubborn and I'm stubborn and then what happens? We fall to our knees, go, all right, I'm done. My way doesn't work. I'll take your way now. It took six times. I got it, I'm with you. The discipline of God in your life is not a mark of God's hatred for you, it's a mark of his love for you. So look for it and invite it. Number 10, you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, verses 20 through through 23, there's nine fruit, plural, that are listed. You got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, long-suffering, self-control. Did I say gentleness? Gentleness. Against those, there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. Is that what's coming out of your tree? Are you one of those people that are just hanging fruit on trees? You're kind of sticking up good works on there. Everything's about behavior modification. Rather, you need heart transformation. That's the power of the gospel. Those are 10 marks of salvation. And you will know if you've experienced the unstoppable power of God because those things, in one way or another, 
will start to come out of your life. And you must remember and push off the guilt and shame of the enemy as his minions try to whisper, oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you sinned. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work as the author of salvation will perfect it. You're being, big word, sanctified, which means you're being made into the image of Christ. Picture God with his chisel and he's making a masterpiece. It takes time. So don't worry if you're not perfect yet. But don't for a second walk around indifferent to what God's word says a true believer will be. Amen? Amen.